Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the dough, where cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. I'm Ami Eubanks-Davis, and in this bonus episode of After 1954, we're breaking format a bit, because I want to share with you a conversation between myself and Liz Thompson, the founder of the CAFE group, which spawned the 1954 Project. The 1954 Project is what inspired this podcast. It is an education philanthropy initiative. You might be asking, what does that even mean? It's a historic philanthropic initiative to provide funding for Black leaders and innovators in education who want to drive economic mobility in the Black community. Traditionally, Black-led organizations only receive 2 to 4% of the philanthropic dollars. The 1954 Project is trying to dramatically increase that percentage. Here's Liz Thompson, the founder and president of the CAFE Group, which started the 1954 Project. We want to be able to support our Black leaders and tell them, we believe in you, we want to invest with you, and we're going to bring others along, not just other Black people. We're going to bring everyone along with us. Because to your point, when you invest, not only in a young Black person, but in Black educators, we all win. They actually provided funding for my organization, Braven. I was in their first luminary class. They gave us a million dollars to make it possible for us to partner with our first historically black college and university, Spelman College. This funding allows for all Spelman women to develop the skills, networks, confidence, and experiences to earn a full dollar instead of 50 cents on the dollar in comparison to their white male peers. The 1954 Project's mission is deeper and wider than just the black teacher shortage. It's a holistic approach that taps into the deep reservoir of talent in the Black community. In today's interview, Liz and I talk about all of that, but we start the conversation by remembering one woman who helped pave the way for all of us, a woman from our native hometown of Chicago whose teaching methods are legendary. Her name is Marva Collins. Here she is talking about her educational philosophy on CBS's 60 Minutes. Ask the slowest children in your class how many children know the rap songs, and they all raise their hands, and I'll say, say them for me. 
And I says, good, if you can do that, you can learn the Canterbury Tales in Old English, too. <laughs> I don't know half of what those rap songs are saying, but they know every line. What makes us think, then, that they become such learning disabilities when they get to school? Basically, Marva Collins, she started a school called Westside Preparatory School that was really focused on students on the West Side, mainly who were growing up in, quote unquote, low income communities. And she realized their genius as black children and said, we are going to educate them to the highest levels of achievement. And basically what she produced academically and honestly, from an enrichment standpoint as well, was just excellence. So there were educators not only here in Chicago, but even across the country that would come to study her practices at Westside Preparatory School. You would just think that how extraordinary she was with creating that school and clearly the difference and the impact that she made that you would have seen Westside Preparatory Schools, not only all over the city of Chicago, but all over the country. All over the world. Right, all over the world. Yeah. And and I, when I think about, and I, you know, Liz, like you, we have some great friends that have started some really awesome schools mm-hmm. um, or are leading really awesome traditional public schools. And yet there is not any person, I think, who started one of those, I'm just going to say in particular, the public charter schools that came from the background of Marva Collins as a black Mm -hmm. educator that then had something that would scale nationally. And yet I'm always like, huh, but Marva Collins. What would have happened if? If she had, and honestly, had she been white, uh, like Mm -hmm. that might have also spread um, her work farther, faster. And that should not have been the case given the excellence she was producing. I agree. What do you think about where we are today? What do you think hmm. about the current state? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about this all the time, of course, you know, through the work of our foundation, through mm-hmm. the work of our nonprofit, education is pretty much all I think about. And in many ways, we've come such a long way, and in many ways, not so much. Mm. I think about the excellence that's happening in schools all over the country. Maybe it's happening in one or two classrooms. Maybe it's happening in a lot of classrooms. But when I think about the excellence that's happening in all black schools, I would want there to be many, many more examples of that Mm -hmm. than I'm able to point to right now. Yep. Our schools are still consistently Mm under-resourced. There's shortages of teachers. There's shortages of teachers kind of writ large, but definitely shortage of black teachers um, to teach our children. So there are ways that I would have wanted to answer that question by saying, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, how far we've come. Look at all these stories of success that we have. And there are many, but not as many as we should have. I mean, and so when I think back to that historic decision in 1954, mm-hmm. where we, you know, purportedly ended state sanctioned segregation, we haven't come as far, I think, as anyone would have hoped for. And we still have so much farther to go. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, there's a person we know in common, Jason Coleman, who started Project Sincere. One that I'm proud to say we fund. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And just what happens, that ripple effect, I think, is what people don't always 
understand is how when you educate a black young person, mm-hmm. often what will happen is they do. And this is when I even think about our relationship, Liz, and I, I feel like I've told you this before, but just in case I haven't, let me reiterate it right now, how special it has been that you and Don have been such great supporters of myself, of Jason um, and his work and other social entrepreneurs in education who are black, because that is not necessarily what happens even for us, even if we've achieved at high levels, mm-hmm. even if we want to come back and do some form of service through a nonprofit or otherwise in our communities, often, even when you reach our levels after being well-educated, having parents done everything right, all the things, we still face real barriers as entrepreneurs in education and without folks like you and Don honestly saying, you know what, these people need to be lifted up. They're doing great work in the community um, that's producing results. It wouldn't happen for us, not only as leaders, but as you know, organizational leaders as well. More on that after this quick break. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com slash survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. Before the break, Liz and I were discussing the barriers Black entrepreneurs in education face when we try to set up programs to address inequity within our communities. Liz says that's one of the reasons the 1954 project exists, to flatten those barriers. Let me tell this quick story. Mm-hmm. You will know our friend Carmita Saman, oh, yeah. um, who started the Surge Institute. Um, Carmita sat me down one day and we had been in a great friendship, great relationship. Um, she mm-hmm. wants to say I'm her mentor. You can't mentor somebody like Carmita. <laughs> that's like saying I'm your mentor. Are you kidding me? That you, you <laughs> I don't, don't know. That's mentor. more true for me than for Carmita. Uh-uh. Carmita's uh-uh. is next level. So. Uh-uh. You can't mentor people like y'all. I'm just a lamppost <laughs> along the way. But um, she said to me at lunch one day, she said, Liz, you know, I appreciate all of your support, but you know, you haven't written a check to search. And she said, let me tell you what that means. Having your support, while Mm -hmm. I'm appreciative of all support, having your support, Liz, would make 
that much of a difference to me, that much more of a difference coming from you as a black woman, Mm -hmm. as a successful black couple, Mm -hmm. the belief that that would demonstrate for me, there's nothing else that compares to that. When I had that conversation with her, it literally changed everything because having been the executive director of two nonprofits, I understood exactly what she meant. Mm-hmm. I rarely was able to go into a black corporate executive's office and ask for their support, right? Because there were none. Right. Um, and so I knew what a difference that made. And it made me think differently about how we needed to support our black leaders. And literally the 1954 project came about as a result of that story, as a result of the story that you just told on me. Because to your point, when you invest not only in a young black person, Mm -hmm. but in black educators, we all win. We all win as a result of that. And I couldn't be more proud of what we've been able to do and the difference it has made for leaders like you, Ami. Um, yeah. It just, it makes me so proud. Well, Liz, and I know you know this from all the research that you did and honestly, the lived experience that you had from running an exceptional nonprofit um, as in the executive director is that organizations that are led by Black people receive about two to four percent of the philanthropy in the country. Yes. Um, And when I think about the exceptional organization that you led, an exceptional organization that I work for for many years, I often say to myself, and I really hope that this is different. And I think you um, understanding the unique role that you and Don could play, I think, is a huge catalyst to this. But those organizations that we were a part of and very proud to be a part of, there's no way, in my opinion, when those organizations started in the early 90s, that a Mm -hmm. black person could have started those organizations and they would have achieved the same level that they achieved at simply because of the lack of investment. That's right. And when I think about myself or Jason or Carmita and the vast other black social entrepreneurs in the education space, I actually think we have a shot of breaking the sound barrier in a way that was just not even imaginable before. Look, I mean, when I was executive director in Chicago, um, here's another quick story. So I would find myself going in and out of CEO offices, sitting in the waiting room, waiting for my shot. And a black woman would come out, a tall, beautiful, statuesque black woman. And I would just say hi, you know, and then I would go in and do my thing. And then maybe a week later, I would walk out of that office and she was sitting in the waiting room waiting to go into the next CEO's office. And finally, after we had done this three or four times, we stopped each other. And I said, my name is Liz. What's your name? And she said, oh, my name's Michelle Obama. I said, clearly we are the only two black women in the city doing this work because I see you going in and out of all the same offices I'm going in and out of. At the time, she was running Public Allies in Chicago. And we literally were the only two that I would ever see doing that. And so, I mean, now fast forward 30 years uh, from that point, and the landscape is full of exceptional black leaders running nonprofit, for-profit for that matter, organizations here in the city and nationwide. And I think you are right. This is our time now. It's our time to have the kind of impact that we've been having, but now on a national stage where we can get the kind of resources that we need. 
So what's so crazy about Mrs. Obama and her story, like your story, you all were really trailblazers because you all broke down a lot of doors in terms of going in those corporate offices and meeting individual donors. What is so striking to me, though, is when I was reading her book, Becoming, Mm -hmm. she actually talks about leading that organization and how challenging it was to be a black education leader in the nonprofit space and how many other executive directors, as well as the founders of that organization, the founder Mm -hmm. of that organization, just really didn't get how hard it was to do the kind of work uh, that you did at that point in time that I'm now doing and Mm -hmm. realize that people were not necessarily going to view you as their child. Um, So usually people give to people. That's one of the rules of giving people give to people. And usually there's a resonance that comes up. And she was like, I knew I did not have that now, like you, uh, like her, uh, like myself, very well educated, Mm -hmm. you know, had done everything right. She was a corporate attorney, you were an engineer, like you all had these stellar business careers. And to hit that was very humbling for her. And it's feedback that she actually said that she gave to the leader of that nonprofit Mm -hmm. because that was a national nonprofit out of the Boston area, just saying, you know, it's just really impossible for someone like me to see myself being successful in this kind of a role, even for all the outcomes, all the community building she was doing that I know you did in your organization that we now do in the world of Braven, like for all the authenticity, credibility that we would have in the black community we had this other liability that yeah. seems so unfair. So it was just so interesting to hear her write about that so transparently. Yeah, I tell you, I mean, it it just goes to show you, you know, we always say that to be successful as, as a Black person in America, you just got to be three times as good. You know, the notion of what she was able to do with that organization mm-hmm. Um What I was able to do, but I will tell you, I had a very strong partner at my side. I'm just going to name him, Michael Alter, who uh, helped me to establish myself in the Chicago corporate community as a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. Um, Having him right by my side made all the difference for me. I don't think Michelle had that. Talking about Michael Alter... He's been a huge contributor to Braven as well in his own right. He really, I think, early on understood the importance of allyship. That's right. Right. He just looked at you. He looked at me. He's like, these are talented people Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing great work that happens to benefit their communities in our cases, but actually broader Chicago as well. And so I should just back them. But he is rare uh, is what I realized. He is rare. Um, Having said that, though, there are a few others here in Chicago. That is true. And and I've got to give them shout outs because I just don't think there's another city in our nation that is as rich Mm -hmm. in people that understand the role that they play as white philanthropists, quite Mm -hmm. honestly, and opening doors for people like us. I mean, we are rich in philanthropists that understand their role, as we call it, their ally role Mm -hmm. in helping Black entrepreneurs, Black social impact entrepreneurs be able to do what they need to do because it's the social capital that we don't have. It's certainly not the intelligence. It's certainly Mm -hmm. not the drive, the persistence. It's none of that. 
It's the social capital that we don't have. And so, as you know, of course, from Braven, social capital is is what enables us to do the work that we need to do. Mm-hmm. One phone call can make all the difference in the world. And these people understand that. And as I think about, you know, many times people say, well, what can we do? Yeah. You can open up your networks to those people that are closest to the work that understand what needs to be done. They just need an introduction. A simple word from you Mm -hmm. will go all the way. No, that's right. We could go on and on and we could talk about corporate citizens Mm -hmm. that understand the importance of backing Black-led organizations. So Chicago is very unique in that way. And yet... There's still a lot of work for us to do here at home, too. You heard the lady. If you are a philanthropist, stand on the right side of history. Make those introductions. Open the door for a Black-led nonprofit. Together, the tide can be changed where Black social entrepreneurs receive far more than 2 to 4% of the philanthropic funding. The proximity we have to the issues and the results we are producing with far fewer resources on the whole should be rewarded. The future of Black education depends on you. We want to give you a quick idea of the kind of impact the 1954 project has on the community of socially innovative educators they support. Here's Liz making the announcement for the first year of those luminaries. On behalf of the 1954 Project and our Leadership Council, we want to congratulate you on being selected to be a member of our inaugural class of luminaries. We are so excited, Nicole, about the chance to support you and your leadership. Our Luminary Awards are $1 million paid out over three years. Your leadership and your work stands out for its potential and actually demonstrated ability to change the game in education. So happy. I'm so happy that this friggin' exists. I'm so excited. Yay! Thank you. Oh, I mean, thank you. We see you as an ambassador for the 1954 Project and the work that we're doing to elevate Black leaders and philanthropy. This gift is going to honestly help us move further faster. I mean, on behalf of me and my husband and the Walton Family Foundation, we couldn't be more proud to name you as a luminary and couldn't be more excited to take this journey with you. So thank you. Awesome. I'm so happy to be on it. Thank y'all. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Abby. Thank, thank you, Abby. So okay. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. The current class of luminaries was announced earlier this month. Come celebrate with them on Thursday, April 28th. To find out more about the event and the historic work of the 1954 Project, visit 1954project.org. After 1954 is a production of Lemonada Media. 
This podcast is brought to you with the generous support from the Walton Family Foundation. I'm your host, Ami Eubanks-Davis. This episode was produced by Priscilla Alibi and Kristen Lepore. Priscilla Alibi is our producer. Kristen Lepore is our supervising producer. Story editing by Jackie Danzinger. Story consulting by Sonia Ramsey. Sound design and mixing by Andrea, Kristen's daughter. Music by Hansel Sue. Additional music by Andrea, Kristen's daughter. Additional engineering from Ivan Kuriev. Our executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax and Jessica Cordova-Kramer. Special thanks to Liz Thompson, Meredith Moore, Acacia Wilson-Feinberg, and Maya Thompson. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at Lemonada Media across all social platforms. To learn more about the 1954 Project and its mission to fund Black leaders in education, visit 1954project.org. You can also get more bonus content and behind-the-scenes material by subscribing to Lemonada Premium. You can subscribe right now in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. To find resources about the topics in this show, go to the show notes on this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.